It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 145, King Ahab's Defeat of the Arameans. Ancient armies are added again in this episode of Message to Kings, as Elijah and Elisha roam the countryside, apparently searching for and training other prophets, a great military conquest ensues. The characters are Ahab and the northern Israelites and the Arameans out of Damascus. The Arameans have a huge force, and after fighting a bit with the Assyrians, their skills have been honed, and now that they have a peace or a break in the fighting with the Assyrians, the Arameans look south and west in the direction of Ahab's country. The drought ten years back severely impoverished the land of northern Israel, but the last ten years or so, probably a bit less than ten years, have been pretty good. The population has started to recover, and the land is healing from the scorching heat and endless dust. As a country, Ahab commanded a small army compared to the Arameans, and they're not battle-hardened to face a real enemy. But during a moment of spiritual desperation, Ahab is going to listen to a prophet of God, and great things are going to happen. Josephus says over a hundred thousand Arameans descend upon northern Israel, and Ahab flees from this huge army and traps himself in Samaria, that well-built fortress by his father. So well-built is Samaria that it's interpreted the Hebrew for Samaria is Watch Mountain. In fact, the location and fortress of Samaria is so good that Ahab plans to outlast the Arameans inside the city walls. But what's sad is Ahab has basically surrendered his entire country, minus one city, to the Arameans. All that stands with him is in this one hilltop fortress called Samaria. 1 Kings chapter 20 Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. So there's a dialogue between the kings. Ben-Hadad shows up at Samaria and demands Ahab surrender. Ahab agrees against the will of his people and his family, and Ben-Hadad is so happy, he throws a giant party with his kings to celebrate. Next, Ben-Hadad sends messengers to Ahab, telling him tomorrow he will come and claim all that is valuable in his sight tomorrow. In typical Ahab fashion, he negates the acceptance of these terms and rallies the people to fight. But it is this lag in false acceptance and then rejection that lulls the Aramean kings to party and get drunk and be not on guard. The end of their exchange is the following. 1 Kings 20.11 This is Ahab's statement to Ben-Hadad. Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Basically, Ahab tells Ben-Hadad, cut the chit-chat 
Quit boasting like you're something. Let's fight and see who's the boss. The last to take off his armor is the victor. Ben-Hadad's response was anger. He commanded his army to attack, but let's remember, it's kind of a drunken rage, disorganized. But they had lost their formations and their leaders were drunk. And as the Arameans assembled to attack across a long encircling front, a strategy comes to Ahab. 1 Kings 20:13. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, This is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle? he asked. The prophet answered, You will. So an unknown prophet comes to Ahab. We don't know who this prophet is. It's most likely not Elijah or Elisha or even a newcomer showing on the scene soon called Micah. He's unknown. Typically when an unknown prophet shows up, there's actually has there's actually greater weight because he doesn't even have a name. He's unknown. And when a man has no name in the Bible, typically there's a greater name that gets the real glory. So what's freaky here is that Ahab actually listens to a prophet. He's desperate. He's in a bad place. Selfishly, Baal has done little for him. He listens to the prophet and does what he says. And it's not like, hey, do this or that. No. Now, actually, Ahab actually steps in faith and risks his own family and children. So originally, Ben-Hadad commanded Ahab to surrender his wives and children and all that was valuable to him. And Ahab almost totally agreed to this, but not really. The point is, Ben-Hadad valued having the family of Ahab in his possession. It meant real power. Ahab protects his family and should. Even in the most unworldly sense, he still loved his children. So the prophet states the junior officer should go out to battle. Josephus actually adds that the junior officers were the princes of the land. This is the sons of the king, the sons of his brothers and his sisters, assuming he has lots of them and he hadn't killed them off yet. This is his sons. This is his family. This is those that are in charge of the army that he trusts. It's the princes of the land. And Ahab listens to the prophet and risks his own family out of obedience to God. And in a form of getting what is coming to you, Ben-Hadad, who commanded to have the family of Ahab and the best of the house of Ahab, is going to get it. 1 Kings 20.15 So Ahab commanded the 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon, while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with them were in the tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who reported, Men are advancing from Samaria. He said, If they do not come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. Reminiscent of David's mighty men, the sons of the king each took down their opponent in the open field. And when this happened, the floodgates were opened, and God's armies, followed by northern Israel's army, smashed the huge Aramean army. 
There's some really cool symbolism here. It was the sons of the king. It was those of noble birth. It was the sons and daughters of God who fought this battle and were the vanguard and brought victory for Israel. We should never discount the power of the sons and daughters of the next generation. And when the enemy threatens to kill, steal, and destroy that next generation, we must understand our victory is in the next generation. The enemy's strategy was to ruin the next generation, but God's plan was to bring victory through them. 1 Kings 20.20 At that the Arameans fled, with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position, see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Now we have a comparison to King David. Like the Philistines, the Arameans will be back the following year. The Arameans strategized, removing those who got drunk and let the army down, and they're going to come back the next year with the larger army. 1 Kings 20.26 The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Apek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. Again, we have Ahab with a tiny, tiny army against the numerous Arameans. He's outnumbered, but he must have been confident, for he knew that this was coming, and now the word of the Lord comes. 1 Kings 20, 28. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is the God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. Interesting how they jockeyed for position for seven days. And on the seventh day, the day of rest, the Israelites fought from rest, not to rest. Like Jericho, the seventh day brought victory and an astounding triumph. 1 Kings 20.29 The Israelites inflicted a 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped the city of Apek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them, and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. This is a crushing defeat of the Arameans, 127,000 casualties, 27 of them when one wall collapsed. Just like Jericho again. Interesting comparisons. Ben-Hadad is desperate and should be taken prisoner, killed, or forced into submission. Instead, in a bizarre case, Ahab shows mercy, and not only this, he gets condemned for it because he doesn't inquire of God. 1 Kings 20, 31. His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waist and robes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waist and robes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. The king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up on his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. And when Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. 
You may set up your own market areas in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, On the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with them and let him go. Ahab lets the king go. Ahab didn't consult God regarding this. The problem here is, it's just like Jericho. The astounding victory comes with the destruction at Apek and Jericho. Following Jericho, there's a scene where idols are taken into the tents of the Israelites and they're judged. Further, there's a scene where the Gibeonites trick the Israelites into making a friendship, a.k.a. alliance with them. Ahab has his idols, no worry about that, and he's charmed by Ben-Hadad into making an alliance and not subjugating him. This alliance will become a snare to him, entangling him into a conflict with the Assyrians and lead to his downfall. A prophet named Micah, according to Josephus, has something to say about this. This prophet is a bit strange, and he's got a severe bent towards the fear of the Lord. Mercy doesn't seem to be his strong suit. He's going to prophesy judgment at least twice, and he's going to pay for it by being put in prison. I do kind of have the take that this guy is probably a bit unredeemed. Let me explain. I get the feel he was a false prophet turned into a good prophet after encountering God. He has the gift of prophecy, but he hasn't learned enough godly character to be refined, and his severe bent towards the fear of the Lord is not balanced with an appropriate knowledge of the mercy of God. So he's a saved prophet with the gift of prophecy, also gifted with the dark arts from his previous profession as a false prophet. Yet he's immature in his walk with God. Thus the actions that we're going to see um, as we begin his account. 1 Kings 20, 35 By the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, Strike me with your weapon. But he refused. So the prophet said, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Okay, so what do you what did you catch that? Like this is absurd for a prophet to do this. This is why I believe he suffered from extreme immaturity and he hasn't unlearned the power of witchcraft that he previously participated in. So he's got this gift of prophecy and he's encountered God, but he still has this strange um mix of his old gifts he hasn't gotten rid of or the witchcraft that he practiced. Um, that's my take. Um, it's a bit unusual. Uh, but he will also practice his gift of prophecy, which we'll see soon. 1 Kings twenty thirty seven. The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road and waited for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set 
free a man I determined should die. Therefore it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Josephus adds that he throws this prophet in prison, which Josephus also says this is Micah, the prophet, which we're going to experience later. He'll be in prison for over three years, where he will be recalled for another strange prophecy in a future episode. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we've got to consider the power that was on display, the second chances Ahab has been given. Combining Ahab and Jehoshaphat's kingdoms, Israel's experienced a very brief golden age by territorial standards. Ahab's territory now stretched from the Mediterranean through Galilee to Damascus. His wealth must be fantastic as it travels from Damascus to Samaria. But we cannot forget what happens when men with idols have too much power. Further, what happens when power goes to one man's head? What happens when one mistreats one of the Lord's prophets and throws him in prison? This behavior will continue into the next episode. In the last two battles, Ahab was crazy successful because he trusted in God and the direction from his prophets. Something was encouraging about this scene, and it's like Joab's one great moment. He was obedient and he fought for God. It's sad that this is Ahab's two moments of tasting of God's glory and godly success. He will soon founder and fall from this point. But for the time being, he is set. The height of the house of Omri lays in this moment. Ahab had it and tasted of godly success and relationship in his battlefield victories. And now I ask you the question. Have you ever tasted of God's goodness and mercies and glory, but had it slip away from you? Maybe you can relate to Ahab at this very moment. Ahab had his moment. What about you? Have you tasted the fruits of obeying God? And have you walked away from these blessings? And do you miss it? It was God's mercy that showed you His grace. Have you prayed a prayer and God answered it? And you forsake Him. And you forgot about that prayer. But you still walked into the blessings that you called upon. Ahab will soon be walking away from God and back into the arms of his idols. Have you ever done this? And you regret it, and long to look back to the time when you dwelled in God's heart. If so, we must remember the story of the prodigal son, who demanded his inheritance early, who went out and blew his inheritance on prostitutes, alcohol, probably gambling, and who is at the bottom of the pit, working in the mud with the pigs, he decided to return home. He ventured home, and the father who was waiting and praying for him welcomed him home like a son that had never left. Now, is it your time to return back to God? And if you doubt this, read again Romans 8, and we conclude this episode with the power of God's grace and his love, that even those who are the Ahabs of this world they can encounter God and His power and experience His love. No matter what you have done and where you come from, He desires to show Himself to you and reveal Himself to you. Ahab, who was considered the worst king in northern Israel, even encountered God and experienced the blessings of obedience. No matter what you have done or will do, nothing can separate us from the power and love of God. 
The Apostle Paul penned these words so perfectly at the end of Romans. No matter what you have done or come from, God loves and desires for you to come into relationship with him. Romans 8:35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.